how, how did I not see this bus coming? Because I was like standing right there and Neftali started the bus. Here I go, right under it. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome. This is Dr. Neftali Serrano, and this is the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association's official podcast, the Integrated Care Podcast. Thanks for joining us again today. Um, I will warn you that based on our pre-show discussion here, we are sorely underprepared. Um, apparently, the month of July has done something to our brains, and we are unable to work as efficiently or as effectively in fact, we should all sort of give our excuses that we've come up with for why it is that uh, we're feeling this way at this point. Um, so, Grace, you had an interesting theory about your lack of preparedness today. I, you know, I think mine is the beginning of the new residency year. So since... Uh, I think I've mentioned on here before that just the last about five or six months have been a breakneck pace for us here at Great Plains Family Medicine Residency. Um, and I welcomed four new behavioral health interns, which a little, possibly a little in over my head there. Uh, and then we have five new residents that started. We're a 555 program and they're doing awesome, but it's just a lot of work at the beginning and takes a lot of brain power uh, to manage all of that. So that's my theory. So I'm going to blame it on the new residents a year so here's the thing Deepu you can't take Grace's excuse because only uh, one he lets one, me go first yeah one allowance <laughs> is allowed yeah, I should have given that one your... to you because I always have triplets I can just blame it on triplets yeah, yeah. you, you, you should you. excuse for, for Deepu because yeah. I literally said that yeah that sounds about right <laughs> how did I not see this bus coming because I was like standing right there and Neftali started the bus here I go, right under it. <laughs> All right. Uh, if it's not the residency, uh, I could also say uh, it is the residency, though, you know, the new year and all of that. But we are also expanding a lot of our PCBH services. We start with uh, OB next week. Uh, so we've been doing a lot of background work, uh, setting up the clinic, uh, giving them provider surveys just to get a sense of what their perception and needs are. Um, and then we have about two hours next week to orient them to PCBH. And then we're also working with our system to hopefully make all this work for years to come. So that's been on my mind on top of new residents. No triplets, but, you know. <laughs> It's uh, still no awesome. excuse. It's still no excuse not to be prepared for the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association's <laughs> official podcast. That's right. That's... We all have our priorities on the Get your priorities straight, <laughs> That's people. right. I was going to say that, Neftali, you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> no excuse. All right. So, Amber, there's no excuse. There's no possible excuse you could have. This It's summertime. You're a student. Actually, my excuse is that I'm going to be graduating uh, next week. I, yeah, August 8th, I'm flying to Phoenix, Arizona to graduate. So I'm busy getting all of my stuff in so that I have all my requirements met for graduation. So I, I do have stuff going on, too, people, even though Hooray. it is the summer and I'm a student. And then later today, I actually have um, an interview at our local hospital to hopefully join their uh, crisis team. So I think that'll also be a really awesome experience getting me more into the healthcare side of things. So yeah, I got stuff going on too. I don't have like little residents or triplets, <laughs> but I do got some things in the oven right now. And I don't mean babies. I just mean like things cooking. <laughs> That's how rumors get started. Yeah, yeah I know. Right. right? That's My right. mom like probably listens to this podcast and she's going to call me and be like, is there something we need to talk about? <laughs> no, mom. no, literally like my master's degree is my baby right now. That, that's all I got time for grace. I really don't know how you do it. Kudos to you lady. <laughs> what you have to do. Yeah. I just want to say that next time there's a round of excuses, I go first. <laughs> Deep who's calling it. I'm calling it. Calling it. Shotgun. Uh, what's your said, excuse, Nathalie? Well, first, I, I want to say next time we come up with excuses, we got to come up with better excuses. Uh, we got to be prepared with our prepared excuses. Like, if you don't have your homework to turn in. Uh, my excuse is that uh, I'm, I'm literally on vacation 
and so my brain is on vacation mode. I'm doing this podcast today because, you know, I love hanging out with you guys and doing this podcast. But, uh, yeah, I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, in the basement of my in-law's house, which is not where I'm usually at. I'm usually in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, in my home. Uh, yeah, and so I kicked out the kids so that they wouldn't be making a bunch of noise uh, around uh, upstairs. So they're taken care of. My wife's off doing other things, and my in-laws are patiently upstairs trying to be nice and quiet. Wisconsin. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not where so I would take for a vacation, but if that's where your family is, then <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're like, I'm on vacation a... in Wisconsin. I was like, no, <laughs> not expecting that. You know, you just defended an entire state. Nothing against the wonderful state of Wisconsin, <laughs> but I was imagining you being somewhere like warm, some beach action, something like that. Not a basement in, in Wisconsin. Yeah. But I, I already had my sort of warm beach vacation oh, okay. in Bermuda a couple of weeks ago for our anniversary, actually. 20th anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. So we, we had that thing and this is sort of the family, uh, sort of trip. So, okay. Yep. So unfortunately in this remote world, uh, you can carry your work anywhere. So here we are. In Wisconsin. In a basement. Good and a bad for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, we do have a show and we have a certain (laughs) amount of preparedness that we have for the show today. Um, and actually we, we did put a lot of work into it. It's just, our brains just didn't get quite working this morning. Uh, a couple of quick announcements before we dive into our, our topic areas today. Um, uh, of course, you know, I always promo our conference for those of you guys out there listening. Uh, we are an association of folks who advocate for integrated care. And so that includes a whole lot of different kinds of people who come together, folks that are integrating behavioral health into primary care, folks who integrated primary care into behavioral health, folks in hospital settings, folks in family medicine residencies, as you've just heard, folks in community health centers, uh, community mental health centers, um, uh, specialty clinics. We have clinical pharmacists in our group. I mean, it really runs a gamut of all the folks who are interested in really uh, making integrated whole person care a priority in the health system. So we come together once a year, and we have a super awesome time together. Um, It's usually pretty exhausting because it's so fun, Uh, but it's a great weekend. It's a weekend in October, October 18th through the 21st, and this year it's in Rochester, New York, and we want you to be there. So for more information on that, please go to integratedcareconference.com. That's integratedcareconference.com. I actually booked my flights this week. I'm really excited. I've always been to other conferences, so this will be my, I'll be a first time attendee at the actual CFHA conference, even though I've been a member for eight years now, I think, close to eight years. So I'm really excited to be in Rochester and see you guys face to face, meet people and be at the conference. That's awesome. Yeah. It's going to be a great time. Uh, yeah, that, that feeling of exhaustion you get is just from the sheer number of neurons firing in your brain from all the conversations you've had. So you'll have a great time. And we will have a podcast episode that we'll be doing sort of live, in quotes, at the, at the conference. So that'll be a lot of fun. So the other uh, quick reminder is for those of you who are CFHA members already, I want to remind you to download the Social Link app on the iTunes or the Google Play stores. Uh, Think of it as your sort of virtual Rolodex for integrated care. I love it. Every once in a while, I'll just go on it, and I'll search by a certain criteria, state, city, um, and it pulls up every member in our our membership who's working in integrated care in that state. Um, if you type up pharmacist, it'll put up all the pharmacists. If you type up social worker to put up all the social workers, it's a great way to get connected and you can obviously message people through that system. So download the social link app, uh, easy to search for on either the, the, uh, Apple or the Google play store for your smartphone. All right. So those are our our announcements. Um, now we're going to have an abbreviated news and notes because of course our lack of preparedness being July Uh, Just a couple of us have news and notes, but that's okay because we have a pretty big topic to talk about. So that'll take up most of our time today. 
Uh, just to tease it also, later in the show, we've got a great interview with the co-chairs of our annual conference, uh, so you'll get a taste of that as well. So without further ado, here are our news and notes. And I'll kick off our news and notes section today. Really good news, and this is part of what, what we try to do when we get together to uh, foster or you know move integrated care forward. Um, we try to advocate for really important issues, issues that make a difference in the real world of healthcare. Um, and this is one of those uh, advocacy issues that uh, we can point to as a success. So uh, the state of Pennsylvania, uh, where you are, Amber. Yeah, that's uh, my state. Yes. Yeah, so you'll be happy to note that uh, they just uh, uh, changed some regulations that allow uh, LMFTs and LPCs to bill Medicaid within uh, federally qualified health centers. Um, and so this is a, a change that the state primary care association has been pushing for for uh, quite some time. And really, there are national calls for this. There's actually a couple of bills in Congress right now. There seem to be annual bills that try to sneak these pieces in, uh, at least over the last several years. We've supported several of these bills. There are a couple right now to make these changes for Medicaid, Medicare. Uh, but in this case, uh, given that Medicaid is, is a state-run program or state-administered pro federal program, uh, it, these sort of changes often have to happen at the state level, and the state primary care association was able to get uh, the state Medicaid to make this change. So what that means is, um, whereas an FQHC in the past would have to just rely on either a social worker or a psychologist licensed individual to work in their clinic, um, and FQHCs, federally qualified health centers, are have been on the vanguard of integrated care efforts, so they are embedding lots of these folks in their clinics. Whereas before, they would have to be limited to using folks with that license. Now they can actually have a, fo uh, have a behavioral health professional who has an LMFT license or a licensed professional counselor license, which, brought, which really expands the workforce that's available uh, for these uh, health centers to choose from. Uh, I, I think that's a great thing, hopefully a harbinger of things to come, because especially what, what we've learned in integrated care is that it's not licensure that determines how effective you are in the setting. It's really the core competencies and, frankly, the core personality attributes or temperamental attributes that you bring to the setting uh, that dictates how effectively you work. So... Uh, kudos to the State Primary Care Association, and thanks to Natalie Lefkovich. She's the executive director of the Health Federation Philadelphia for passing along this news item. Um, she was uh, instrumental in at least getting that conversation going at the state level, and the State Primary Care Association then took it the rest of the way with their advocacy efforts. So really cool news item. Yeah, I'll have to write her a thank you note because I will be an LMFT eventually. My MFT is my uh, going to be my official letters, and then I'm going to be going for licensure. So that really, really affects me as an individual and where I'll be able to go professionally. So I'm excited. Yeah. Awesome news. Awesome news. All right. Uh, did anybody else do their homework for the news and notes? Or Ooh. I thought of one while you were talking. Does that count? <laughs> That's like that's like when you fill in your homework real quick while the teacher's like going oh, over like what you're going to be go doing for the day. Never, I never would do that. <laughs> I actually don't think you ever did. I read that. This is like me reading the intro to the article and then sort of going first. <laughs> never done that either. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Uh, the news that I thought of that was really kind of big news in our state over the last month or so is that. Oklahoma State Question 788 passed, which is a measure that approves medical marijuana. And there's just really, uh, knowing our state, I was surprised actually that it passed, just knowing kind of some of the culture around here. And so it's going to raise a lot of questions for patients, for providers about, you know, the utility of the use of medical marijuana, of the appropriateness. We've already had patients in our clinic who've asked, can they be prescribed it? Uh, and so it's just going to raise a lot of questions, I think. And 
I think it's relevant to us in integrated care for a lot of obvious reasons, but one of the big things is when when there is a medication that there's questions about or disagreement about or that there can be some risk involved, when we have the interdisciplinary team that wraps around the patient and facilitates communication between the provider and the patient, we can take such a more nuanced approach to using medications um, that have some of this controversy around them. So I'm just really, there's already been a lot of just interesting developments as far as the interpretation of the question um, and how the rules are going to be implemented. Um, I think I read that there's a special session meeting right now to reevaluate some of the things that the um, department had put into place right after it passed. So it's just, you know, it's going to take some time to see how it's going to shake out. Uh, but I'm just really interested to follow that and interested to train because, you know, my position is sort of this cross training position. And so to train our early career physicians and early career behavioral health consultants to work together with the patient and the family to figure out the most effective, appropriate use of all of the medications that are available to us. So, absolutely, that, that, was, that was a good news item to come up with. <laughs> Last minute save by Grace. So, yeah, the great point though about the integrated care team being crucial to that piece because um, it is true that these, and we'll probably, I mean, we'll probably, we'll, we will have a podcast or a set of podcasts on chronic pain and uh, all the issues around that, um, which then this throws another monkey wrench into, could be positive mm -hmm. aspects to it, could be complicating aspects to that conversation, right? Because so many of our clinics are working right now within our teams to help move patients off of the notion of uh, elimination of pain as a target of their chronic pain endeavors, right? And so this potentially throws some complicating factors into it. Um, and on, on the other hand, um, and there's, there's uh, research on both sides of this at this point, but yeah, it could be a, uh, an interesting development for patients who really do struggle with chronic pain and for which this can provide some functional benefit. So, yeah, uh, I'm glad. I'm glad that we have, at least in many places, uh, integrated care teams to handle these sorts of discussions because I'd hate to have a solo provider having to manage this on their own. This is a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. All right, any other news items today? I will abstain from sharing any news items yeah. in the this interest of this time isn't, right? this isn't a congressional roll call DP. <laughs> you don't abstain from a news item. Um, all right all right well that officially ends our news and notes no, for today all right now on to our uh main topic of the day and you know this one this one is a uh, sort of a current item we we have our list of stuff that we'd like to talk about it's a long list that we've developed so that you know we're many months out uh, writing these but we decided to sort of short circuit our list and uh respond in a way to an email listserv discussion that really took off. And for those of you who are not CFHA members, CFHA has a, a pretty um, a pretty well-used uh, email listserv. Uh, it's really one of probably the main member benefits that people, people uh, experience. Um, you have all these folks who are really passionate about integrated care um, who are willing to talk on, on email and share their, their opinions and um, it's great. So this email listserv developed, and it, it started with a fairly innocuous question. I went back to the original question just to kind of see, because as often happens with these things, they can kind of get off on slight tangents pretty quickly. But the original question was this, and I, I think she'd be okay with me mentioning who it was. This was Laura Sudano, a good friend of CFHA out on the West Coast now. And um, uh, her question was pretty simply, hey, all. Hey, everybody. I'm wondering if anyone would be able to share what type of data they collect to evaluate warm handoffs. That is, what data elements are you capturing? 
And then of course she says, you know, let me know uh, what you think. So that was the sort of fairly innocuous question. <laughs> so so here's the lesson learned. Asking a fairly innocuous question on the CFHA listserv can lead to a big explosion because about 40 emails later, <laughs> the conversation ends. Uh, and I'll, I'll just read a little bit of the first response to it. It shows you where the tangent began to go, and then we'll talk a little bit about why we think the, the, con the, the, the conversation sort of took off in that direction. Um, so, so this is then a response, again, I, I think uh, Jeff Ryder, who's uh, well-known to many folks in the integrated care world, um, author of the main book on behavioral health consultation, along with Patty Robinson, uh, this is what he said in response. Hi, Laura. Out of curiosity, how are you defining warm handoff? Now, you know, as soon as an email starts with uh, a call to a definition, uh, <laughs> you know, okay, it's going somewhere else. I can almost see Laura rolling her eyes at this point. Um, uh, people, it says what he goes on to say, people seem to define it in very different ways. To some, it is merely a meet and greet basically an administrative encounter in which the BHC meets the patient, provides a business card, and helps the patient schedule an appointment for some other day. Open parentheses, editorial comment, in my honest opinion, this is largely a waste of time and may even deter future warm handoffs because it takes up PCP time and exam room space without actually anything being done. I'm not sure that would feel worth my time if I was a PCP, close parentheses. But to others, a warm handoff typically results in an actual intervention being done. Whether the BHC and the patient have five minutes or 30, the BHC will provide some sort of help. Also, some only really use warm handoffs after the PCP has completed his or her visit, but others routinely get pulled into the middle of PCP visits, for example, to help with some task while the PCP goes on to another patient, or to get worked in before the PCP, for example, for pre-visit planning. Also, some call it a warm handoff if the PCP has merely seen the patient earlier and then placed the patient onto the BHC schedule without any interaction between the PCP and the BHC. And he goes on uh, with a little bit more of that. I won't go into more, I won't belabor the point there. But the idea is that essentially from there, the listserv discussion took off uh, as to how people were defining warm handoffs, what warm handoffs were. And then someone threw in uh, an article, which I'll talk about here, we can talk about here in a second, um, that uh, looked at warm handoffs and looked at warm handoffs in relationship to whether patients made return appointments. Uh, uh, spoiler alert, the article said that warm handoffs did not result in any increase in um, uh, subsequent visits with the behavioral health professional. Uh, and so that was the nature of it. So, you know, there's a couple of angles here. Obviously, there's content that we want to talk about, right? So, you know, kind of what the content of the warm handoff um, discussion is, what the definition is, what some of the issues were in the conversation. Uh, but the other piece, too, that I wanted to address was sort of why something like this would elicit such a strong response uh, from, from our folks. And, and maybe that's a good place to start, because it clearly touched a nerve, and yeah, it seems, started thinking seems about like that. seems like such a simple question, but it clearly, like you said, some really passionate feelings came out, and I, to me, it felt like kind of the heat rose a little bit, and a lot more people jumped into the conversation after the article was shared that you mentioned. That um, you know, I know that I have a group chat with some friends from my PhD program. And I sent it to them and said, what do you think about this? Like, let's continue this conversation. And they brought up a lot of the points that many of the people on the listserv ended up bringing up as far as how are we measuring this? How are we operationalizing this? And what I thought was such a good point is their outcome variable was whether people come back for therapy, basically. But there's an underlying assumption in there of a little bit more of a co-located model than a full integration of care. And so we kind of landed on what was part of the driving part of the list of conversation is that a lot of this is about operationalizing 
what we do, um, selecting the outcomes that we really care about. And I think why this is so important to us is because we want to show anecdotally, we know what we do is effective, but we need more than anecdotes. We need to be showing this in the research and we need to be able to point to it and say, Hey, you guys need to pay for this. You guys need to organize this. We need space for this. We need um, champions to help promote this model and to get those champions outside of our little bubble. We've got to have the data to back it up. Yeah. And so, you know, this is, we'll do a little impromptu test and I promise you this was not pre-planned here, right? <laughs> but like Amber, you will be our little test subject here. All right. So you are a student LMFT program, right? And trying not to tr think about all the think stuff all we've the talked stuff. about as a team um, here as a podcast team and all that kind of stuff. Just thinking purely of your experience in your training program and what you've been taught. What's your understanding of a warm handoff based on what you have sort of gleaned from your training? So again, like, you know, that goes back to the whole issue of not really having a true operational definition and the way that we are kind of taught to look at it is that there's different levels and you know we're like you know is this a fully integrated practice is you know the behavioral health care professional coming in and consulting like where are they in the team you know dynamics um if I, you know, forget all of that and just think about what I've seen and what I've experienced, the warm handoff oftentimes ends up looking like, okay, hey, like we have, you know, someone who deals with mental health care, or we have a therapist or whatever, I'm gonna, you know, hand you off to so and so, and then they're gonna do the evaluation with you and figure out if, you know, we can work on your you know, med compliance or whatever it is. And, you know, that's kind of it. It's a very quick, like, here's this. And then you take it off into whatever, you know, field you're going to work in for that person. But I think, again, it also depends on the type of practice that you're in and what that actual location operates like. Well, that's, I mean, that's a, you know, just speaking to how it needs to be operationalized to Grace's point, how it needs to be defined like uh, that's actually a pretty good baseline understanding that you have. Like the fact that you mentioned the levels of integration and that there are variations is like light years ahead of where I think many students have been um, in years past. So that, that goes, that heartens me. I have a, a good bit. program. I have a really good program. <laughs> yeah. I love my program. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great because I, I think that's part of the understanding. It, it is the sense of, you know, what is, when you use the words warm handoff, what do you mean by that? And clearly, um, through the d email discussion, you clearly saw that, that people had pretty different understandings of what a warm handoff was. And I think the reason it got a little bit um, sort of emotional, for lack of a better word, is simply that, you know, it's, it's so core to what we do as integrated care professionals on a day-in, day-out basis uh, and it defines really who we are as professionals. The warm handoff is really core to who right. we present ourselves as part of the team. And certainly as someone like myself who's been doing this for 17 years, um, I have a pretty strong sense of professional definition that's centered around the warm handoff. For me, it's a source of pride that my skill set is uh, building rapport very quickly with a patient and offering assistance to that patient right away. In other right. words, um, I don't see the warm handoff as uh, an intro to get the patient to buy into the real thing, which will happen later on. I pride myself on going into the room and right away trying to be as helpful as possible, both to the patient, but also to the medical team, to make sure that I'm gathering the right kind of information, providing conceptualization, uh, around what's happening to the patient um, and and being as helpful as possible in that visit, assuming, in fact, when I train folks, I train my students, you never assume that the patient's going to come back. You always think, today's my only shot. What am I going to have them walk away with here today? Um, and that's a source of pride for me, given that my professional identity is wrapped around that. 
I think as I reflected on that, that explained to me why folks were so passionate about this discussion. Right. I think one of the things that uh, we talked about in our prep meeting was also uh, that in order for me to orient myself to the work that I do, I sort of take pride in the idea that I'm a member of a primary care task force that is here to keep the community healthy, build a sustainable relationship, clinical relationship with patients over time. And, uh, and so I think people are passionate about this because we really feel and can make a difference in the, in the work that we do. I have a uh, first-year family medicine resident on my rotation this month, and so as the listener was uh, sort of popping up with all of the hot conversations, um, I sort of, you know, was tracking a lot of things, but I sent him some of the conversations and I sent him the article, uh, same as uh, Dr. John Ruelas, and he sort of read through the article uh, and talked to me about it afterwards. So the context of integrated care matters, right? Is it co-located versus fully integrated? And, and, and the, the, the hue, the texture, and the shape of warm handoffs sort of shifts based on where you put it. And he said uh, the image that came to him of a warm handoff in traditional care or more co-located care is like a hot potato being tossed around, right? So you sort of like give it off to the other person. The other person sort of hand, uh, catches it, fixes the appointment, and then tosses it off to the next, and sort of it's that. And he said for PCBH in our clinic, what he's experienced is, is more like warm potato on a cold day where you're sort of rolling it off to the next person. <laughs> and so that there's uh, a lot of care than just tossing it to the next person. So there's... Uh, uh, you know, a very much more intimate picture. And I think uh, Jeff, who's not here, I'm going to channel his uh, wisdom here. He's <laughs> talked about uh, warm handoffs as a relational setup, right? The, the temperature of the initial relationship. And I think uh, he also, I may be mixing people up here, who said what? <laughs> uh, but I think he really talked about the membership in the family and patients feeling a real sense of community. Uh, so we're not tossing patients. We're sort of slowly rolling them over, letting them know that we are part of the same, um, even though different members are becoming part of your care. We really don't want you as the patient to experience this as a different thing. This is all one good delivery system. Um, and I think that identity, and at least for me, and I know all the members of the podcast team, and I'm sure... 98% of CFHA, I think, would agree that that matters. Uh, so I think a lot of the emotion and passion behind the list sort of makes sense to me. Yeah. That's you know, another thing... Before, another you thing say, that... before you say something, Grace, I just mm -hmm. need to say that for some reason, Deepu's analogies always center around food. And I'm just <laughs> going to point that out. I don't know. Last time it was some rich chocolate something or other. Oh, oh yeah. Good Chocolate yeah. <laughs> I always finish I, our podcast ready for lunch. <laughs> uh, I was just going to add, you know, Jeffrey's not with us because he's on a family vacation to the right. Zion National Park and we miss having his voice. And, right. you know, he made a good point kind of toward during our pre-discussion that reminds me of something you said earlier too, Naftali, that a lot of warm handoffs, the quality of the warm handoff, we might be able to attribute to the relationship skills of the provider. Um, and like you said earlier, it's less about the license and more about the competencies. And so part of, you know, I keep coming back to operationalizing, um, but part of why that's so important is so that we can build competencies, so that we can build good training, you know, besides demonstrating the effectiveness and getting it paid for, the other pieces, we can train people around it. Um, we can define a warm handoff as more than just a hot potato. Um, I, I love that image. Then we can do so much more with it. And yeah, it's a, a critical component of the relationship building with the patient. It's all part of the work that we're doing, not just something that needs to be checked off our list. Right. And as part of that whole uh, relationship-centered care, I think the end point of a warm handoff could be more than just a visit, right? So I think... Uh, Jeff Ryder sort of talked about, is there a broader word or a different thing? 
And I think Elaine Hess from Houston, uh, she had sort of uh, chimed in and she talked about something called the word of touch points or maybe it's something broader, but it really, um, it really was based on the idea that there's a whole bunch of things as a team member that we can do for our PCPs. And I think David Bowman talked a lot about what is the ultimate uh, effect or impact of a warm handoff. Is it better management? Is it an altered comprehensive treatment plan? Is it new information that we were able to gather for the primary care team? Or is it just more confidence in the primary care team that we can handle this complexity with multiple endpoints? And, you know, I have stories for each one of those uh, every day uh, oh, yeah. in how we work that. Yeah, absolutely. It goes back to what not only the definition of the warm handoff is, but also the goals of the warm handoff, right? And and that's the tricky part. And the, to uh, you know Roger Kessler's point, he was the one pushing for data as a researcher. Um, I think that's great. Uh, data, we need data. But the reason that warm handoffs are difficult to study, or at least warm handoffs if you're defining them at the far end of the integrated care spectrum, right? Um, is because the goals of warm handoffs vary visit to visit. So there are some times when the goal of that warm handoff is to provide a, a specific intervention to that patient that, that day in that, in that very visit. There's other times when it's just simply facilitating better communication between the patient and the provider that day. There are other times when it's um, providing information, collecting reasonable, important information that's going to shape that patient's care plan going forward. Um, so to me, you know, I subsume all those in one sort of phrase, which is maximizing today's primary care visit. No matter what I'm doing with the patient, I'm trying to make today's primary care visit as productive, as helpful, as efficient as possible, both for the patient and for the primary care team. Um, and that can just take many, many forms, which does prevent provide a sort of conundrum of sorts, right? Um, in a way, the main outcome of a warm handoff is some measure of team functioning. Does, right. Did the team function better as a result of this, um, of this handoff between two members of the team? Right. That's really the 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 larger overarching goal of the warm handoff. So, you know, the idea of sort of studying it in isolation, studying a return visit, then, of course, doesn't make a whole lot of, lot of sense um, based on that. Um, so, however, to give it a little bit of air here before we sort of tie our conversation, Deepu did mention the article that was listed. Um and we'll put that article in the show notes here, the link to it. Um, it. It's interesting that the authors of the article themselves noted this issue. So I'll just read a quote from the article here uh, out of the discussion section. Uh, so they're trying to explain their results, which showed that um, they didn't see folks coming back at any higher rate. Uh, when they met, basically the intervention was a meet and greet. So they met the social worker for a subsequent intake appointment. In fact, it was interesting. They actually controlled for or sought to control for instances when the patient was given a same-day appointment, which was interesting, almost as if that were like a, not the outcome they wanted to look at. But um, here's what they say to explain why that might have happened. So another possible explanation is heterogeneity heterogeneity of warm handoffs conducted in a real-world setting. Ideally, during warm handoffs, behavioral health clinicians establish rapport with patients, deliver brief supportive counseling or a brief intervention, and educate patients about the integrated behavioral health program. In a busy, underserved clinic such as ours, however, integrated clinicians may not always have the opportunity to deliver all aspects of a warm handoff, and its potential in improving attendance may not be realized. So uh, I, the authors of the paper, I think, um, uh, had some insight into the reality that the definition of warm handoffs is quite varied. What makes me a little sad is that they said, in a busy, underserved clinic such as ours, integrated clinicians may not have the opportunity to deliver all aspects of a warm handoff. 
So my question is, what are your people doing that they don't have time to deliver <laughs> all the necessary interventions in that handoff? <laughs> you know, there's something going on there in your system that's not uh, allowing team the team to function well. Because if this is really a priority of the team, and if you're really working towards integrated care in an underserved setting where you know it's going to be hard for folks to come back and, and, and get care and afford that care on top of that, uh, how are you not maximizing you know, what you do? And as someone who's worked in underserved settings in busy underserved clinics um, for most of my professional career, I can tell you that that only provides more impetus for me to make sure that I get as much done in that visit. I'm not going to waste my time on scheduling a future appointment. I'm going to spend my time on helping that person as much as possible because I don't know if they're going to come back. Uh, you know, I, we don't know. I don't think any of us personally know this practice or what they're doing. We're just going off of what they've read. But in other experience of observing other practices, what I've noticed is when there's not time for warm handoffs or not time for a brief intervention in the room, a lot of times is because they're doing more of a collocative model. And so if you were noticing, if, if a listener was noticing this in their practice that I'm too busy, I don't have time to do warm handoffs, I would invite them to think about the same question you just asked. What are you doing instead? What is taking your time? And if much of your time is taken up by traditional session, therapy sessions or follow-ups um, that are just with the behavioral health clinician, then I would just kind of invite them to evaluate that and think about that and think whether that time is could be best sent, spent serving patients a little bit differently. Right. And, you know, yeah. CFHA has so many awesome resources to help with thinking about that um, and thinking about ways that practices can be transformed and changed. So that would just be kind of a, a food for thought that I would offer. Right. I think what, you know, not to be the nerd about definitions, but to be the nerd says, about definitions. Says the person who made a whole PowerPoint about <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I always go back whenever I, I get confused or uh, when I'm training new behavioral health providers or even working with PCPs to really contextualize is to sort of say the definition of primary care is the provision of integrated accessible healthcare services by clinicians who are accountable for a large majority of personal healthcare needs, developing a sustained partnership with patients and practicing in the context of family and community. And if whatever warm handoffs look like in your system is uh, facilitating this idea, then I think we're maximizing the impact of what we do. Um, because this is a huge access issue. Uh, it is an impact issue. And it's actually the best kind of that a majority of our patients who are busy who uh, have multiple jobs and other things that they need to get done uh, to have a same-day visit and get some insight, relief, more information, or even just a better relationship with their provider. And that can go a long way. So I always come back to sort of root myself and what we do back to this one definition until they come up with a better one. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. It's about doing great primary care. Yep, absolutely. Well, as usual, we uh, our conversations run up against our, our clock here. Um, so thank you very much for that discussion. We're going to cut now to an interview. Uh, for those of you who would like to continue this conversation and others, as I said, we have our annual conference uh, coming this October. And we've got a really great interview that Amber did with our co-chairs. So, Amber, can you just briefly intro who you spoke with and, um, you know, just smooth us into that interview? Uh, so I was actually able to uh, speak with the uh, co-chairs uh, for the conference, uh, Jennifer and Lauren. In the beginning of the interview, you will hear them introduce themselves. They are 
really, really cool uh, ladies. Each of them are very involved in the integrated care scene in different aspects. Um, it was actually Jennifer's birthday uh, on Tuesday when I did the podcast. Um, so I felt very special that she took some time out of her day to uh, to speak with me. Um, both of them are very excited about the conference. They went into a little bit about you know why they chose Rochester and the focus for the conference and what they're most looking forward to as well as what people can kind of hope to walk away with. So I hope you guys enjoy that interview with them. Great. Yeah. So Jen Funderburk and uh, Lauren are, uh, Lauren DeCaparel, Ryan are awesome people. So here's Amber's interview with our conference coaches. Two of our conference coaches is a third, but uh, he's not on the interview. Here they go. Um, I have Lauren and Jennifer with me today, and we're going to talk about uh, the conference. But before we dive into that, um, Jennifer, if you could just kind of tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, what you're up to these days. Sure. Um, well, uh, my name is Jennifer Funderburg. I'm the co-chair of the planning committee for this upcoming CFHA's annual conference. I also uh, am a board, I'm a member of the board of directors for CFHA. And for my real job, which neither one of those are, I work as a clinical research psychologist at the VA Center for Integrated Healthcare. So I am one of those geeky people who um, am doing a lot of research, writing, and doing those clinical uh, trials that um, people read about sometimes in journals. All right. Thank you so much, Jennifer. And Lauren, if you wouldn't mind just uh, doing the same thing, telling us a little bit about yourself, what you're up to, and your stake in all of this. Absolutely. So I uh, am Lauren DiCaprio Ryan. I am uh, Jen's other half and co-chair of the conference and also on the board of directors of CFHA. I've um, been a member of the organization for seven or eight years now um, and for a long time did a lot of work for our early career psychology uh, professionals and others within the organization. And um, my real job, as Jen likes to call it, I like that. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist at the University of Rochester Medical Center. Um, and I spend the majority of my time doing a lot of teaching. I'm embedded in the departments of psychiatry, internal medicine, and surgery, and I am the co-director of our primary care family psychology fellowship and uh, director of our adult psychology training program. So as you can all tell, these ladies are super lazy and they are not into <laughs> anything related to integrated care whatsoever. Um, so which is great because the one thing that they do have in common is that they're both co-chairs of uh, the conference, which is what we're going to talk a little bit about today. Um, as you may or may not know from our several shameless plugs that we have going on on the podcast, um, it is the 20th anniversary um, Collaborative Family Healthcare Association conference coming up. It's going to be in this uh, this October, the 18th through the 20th in Rochester, New York. Um, and apparently there is some special significance to that. So if you ladies would like to share a little bit about that, I think I'd be interested to hear it. And so would our listeners. Sure, Jen, do you, what sure. do you want to take here? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I can always tell people how awesome Rochester is, but I think it is going to be, a, it has a, a lot of meaning for this upcoming 20th conference of CFHA because I think it is, it is just a home of innovation, both within and outside healthcare. So, um, you know, as many people within the organization, but others should know, CFHA was actually founded by a group of 45 innovators um, in Rochester, New York, and a lot of the innovation related to integrated healthcare came from people working in this actual city or being trained here. Um, so, for instance, uh, George Engel's work on the biopsychosocial model, which is fundamental to a lot of integrated healthcare philosophy, um, came from his work when he was working here at the University of Rochester. And I think. I think it's just a really great time to bring people to the city in addition because of the other innovators that have come from um, this environment. People like Frederick Douglass, Susan B. Anthony. Um, there are many social reformers and innovators in science, music, healthcare. So 
it's just really fun to have um, our 20th conference come back here and be on and be honoring that in uh, this just really cool place to live. Yeah, I think um, we're really delighted to be able to celebrate that history and um, the ways in which that will impact our continued thinking about innovation and integration, and to be able to celebrate the uh, work of those founders, many of whom are still doing this work, and to be able to connect our membership to those people. So, Lauren, um, you know, you just so one of the keywords, actually two of the keywords um, that are affiliated with this conference, which is innovations in integration. Um, so going along with that, what do you both feel um, are, you know, important to focus on with this conference? You know, it, what is uh, innovation and, and solutions and why are they important, you know, for us to take a look at and focus on this year? That's a big question. Um, I think as we thought about um, this year's conference, we wanted to be able to, to do two things. We wanted to be able to honor our past, acknowledge where we are today in integration and think about how we continue to move forward. Um, healthcare is a obviously ever-changing landscape. Um, knowing what we've already done, knowing some of the uh, barriers and problems that have existed in integration before and learning from those things and thinking creatively as we move forward is something that I think um, Jen and I both cherish, but the organization does as well at, on a much larger scale. And so we wanted to be able to um, acknowledge that work. As we think about uh, solutions in healthcare, we really wanted to begin to think about um, the tracks that we've highlighted, the ways in which we see integration as being particularly important um, to achieve great things um, and to really think about how to do that effectively and efficiently. Um, and so that's where our tracks developed from. So speaking of those tracks, um, can you touch on um, a little bit of what type of education sessions conference attendees can be looking forward to? Yes, we have, I mean, we have an immense amount of amazing material that is scheduled to be presented uh, this upcoming year. Um, the three highlighted tracks are on interprofessional teams, opioid and substance management, as well as issues across the lifespan. Um, and the planning committee, when we first got together and we're talking about being, you know, trying to ensure that the presentation content continued to reflect the innovations that our membership often do present on at previous meetings. These were three areas that we felt were really strong um, and areas of need to the current um, attendees that would be coming to the conference, that this would be material that they would be really interested in, in learning more about and also where there's a lot more innovation occurring within the field that, that, that could be shared. And Lauren, do you have anything to um, add to what Jennifer touched on as far as the highlighted tracks for the conference? I think they're really cool. Um, I think they're just that is really. A great thing to add. I agree. With that. <laughs> I think they're really exciting, um, and the folks that we have coming to speak on this, as Jen stated, are really um, experts in the field, and I think will help all of us think through this work creatively. Um, I am particularly excited about the across the lifespan piece. Um, as a geriatric psychologist by training, uh, I really think that integration is the way to go when we talk about patient care. And um, historically, we have had a lot of work uh, in that area related to pediatrics. And so I'm excited for us to expand our knowledge base as it pertains to working with older families um, and the impact that that could have at a community level. So. That's awesome. I mean, we um, we got a little bit of a uh, rough draft of some of the sessions us, us podcast hosts and we were all talking about how we we can't even decide what we want to go to like we're trying to figure out how to split ourselves into multiple selves so that we can attend pretty much every um session that there is because they all sound so awesome and we're we're really excited about them um 
Speaking of, you know, the sessions and getting excited, what are you guys hoping uh, for conference attendees to kind of take away from this experience from the event? Hmm. I guess for me, um, I'm going with an attention to the interprofessional teams presentations and the research and evaluation training track presentations, which we haven't discussed yet, but I'll definitely um, share about that. With regards to interprofessional teams, I am just super excited. Similar to you, I had there were so many presentations that are going to be on that topic that I think will just really push everyone, including me, um, to think about ways to work with Inter, within interdisciplinary teams. I think it's something we're not often trained in how to do. Um, and I think our field has come to a place where we're not talking so much about how to get integration to happen. It's now, okay, how do we get it to happen well? Um, and so I'm hoping that people walk away from those presentations with, and, and our plenary speaker, Eduardo Salas, who's like expert in teams, to help guide us in what we can take back to our home organizations as far as how we can improve that aspect of care. Um, we do have this research and evaluation training uh, track, which is sessions that focus on integrated healthcare, but they focus on training people on how to do practical evaluations um, and quality improvement studies, which as healthcare professionals, we're being asked to show me the data, you know, a little bit more often than we've ever been asked before. And I don't think that people often are trained in how to do that. And so this training track, the goals of it are to help people walk away with that knowledge, with practical skills. Um, and so people who attend those sessions, I really hope I'm, you know, I'm one of the individuals who really worked hard to create that track. And I think it's very unique to our conference. And I think it allows people to walk away with practical skills that they can come back to their home organization and actually begin to apply um, in whatever they need to evaluate. That is beautiful. And I'm as if I couldn't get more excited about it. I'm even more excited now. Um, Lauren, what about for you? What are um, some of the takeaways that you're hoping for conference attendees to come away with? You know, I think um, as I think about what brought me to CFHA in the first place and the main thing that keeps me coming back year after year is that um, for much of the work that we do, we often find ourselves in professional silos and uh, CFHA allows a real nice opportunity to connect to other disciplines um, and to really build relationships and to understand from other healthcare professionals what it is that one professional group is looking for versus another and how to work together most effectively. I think the interprofessional track is the piece that I am, like Jen, really excited about. Um, but I, I think the conference as the whole, the piece that I always treasure is that opportunity for connectedness um, and really to get to know people who have done this work for a long time. The founders always make themselves incredibly accessible, um, as do uh, folks like Jen who do this really um, sophisticated work around program evaluation. To be able to ask the experts questions is just really special. Uh, and so my hope is that everybody takes advantage of that throughout the three days. And I, I know for me, I'm, you know, I'm actually a, a student. I don't know. I didn't really clue you guys in on that. Um, but I'm actually, you know, finishing up my master's in medical family therapy. And, uh, you know, Lauren, that last piece about just really being able to dig into the professional identity and really connect with um, other people in this field who are really excited and invigorated about this work is something that I'm looking forward to in addition to, you know, all of the education pieces that are there. But I think the sense of community and the networking and the ability to connect with each other is another important piece that sometimes, you know, can get a little overlooked because we're so excited about all this, you know, cool material that's going to be there. But there's also going to be really cool people. Um, and if you guys want to connect with Lauren and Jennifer, um, they will be at the conference. So you should come to the conference as well. Uh, just another reminder, it is in the awesome city of Rochester, New York, and it's going to be October 18th through the 20th. Um, so with that, I just want to thank Lauren and Jennifer for your time. Um, do you guys have any closing remarks before we wrap up this lovely interview on Jennifer's birthday? 
<laughs> I had to get it in there. I had to. She is what a dedicated professional. She's like, you know, taking time away from her water skis to to interview us, like with us today. So, one thing to end with is some people think that Rochester, New York, is not a very cool place to visit, and I will just argue that in October, in particular, the fall colors will be amazing, and it is actually a good time of year to come visit and enjoy some of the the wine tasting, the hiking, the, you know, there's Niagara Falls that's very close by. So not only is the conference going to be amazing, but I actually think it's not a bad place to schedule a trip to. So. So you could make it into a whole, you know, family vacation if you want to, that's you right. know, come for the knowledge, stay for the wine. I mean, that, that sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> Lauren, any closing thoughts from you? I mean, that's hard to top. <laughs> that one-liner says it all about our great city. <laughs> I, uh, I I think we're we're all really very very excited, um, and to be able to highlight our community in this way is going to be outstanding. And we're really excited to share that with as many people who are able to come, um, and excited to also play tourist with those who come. So, do it. Very cool. Get to Rochester. Okay. <laughs> yeah, get there. F figure it out. All right. Well, I'm going to let you guys go. Jennifer, I hope that you enjoy the rest of your birthday. Lauren, thank you again for your time. And I look forward to meeting both of you in Rochester in October. Sounds great. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. And our thanks again to uh, Jen and Lauren for providing that interview uh, time for us. Uh, we do hope that just listening to them and their enthusiasm just gets you excited about our conference in October. Um, we have some great conversations and many conversations still to have, so uh, please join us uh, at that time. Uh, we also have, we have so many good interviews slated that we can't fit them all into one podcast, so we're going to have some upcoming interviews here um, I've got one with the, the Deputy Director of the Center for Integrated Health Solutions. Um, and so that we're going to package that one coming up uh, in our, either in our next podcast or in a bonus podcast. I haven't decided yet what, what we're going to do with that. But I want Deepu to tease an additional really interesting interview that he did. Um, uh, you know, this conference that we're doing is sort of hearkening us back to the history, the roots of integrated care. And so we thought doing a little bit of an interview, uh, sort of a historically based interview would be good. And so Deepu uh, spoke with uh, someone who has a good sense of connection to that interview. Deepu, can you tease that interview for us? I sure can. I had the privilege to talk to Dr. Ron Epstein uh, from Rochester. Uh, Ron is a a student and I guess I guess we can say a protege of uh, George Engel himself. George Engel is the physician uh, scientist author who really framed uh, the biopsychosocial model, which I think uh, gave the language and the infrastructure uh, and sort of like the blueprint for the for the medical providers and and the world of medicine to really think about. Uh, whole-centered, patient-centered care. And I feel like a lot of the work that we do is rooted in those fundamental ideas. Ron was around when uh, George Engel was forming these ideas. So we get a lot of insight into who George Engel was and why Rochester is such an important geographic uh, location for the work that we do today. And you'll get some very personal insights about George Engel that you may or may not want to know. <laughs> <laughs> and if that will. doesn't get you to tune in, I don't know what will. That's <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. That's right. All right. You know, guys, not bad for a podcast that we were totally unprepared for, right? I mean, that's right. Not Fake bad. it till you make it, people. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that is 90% of integrated care right there. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right. So as usual, we have Deepu taking us out with uh, a meditation. Deepu, uh, take us out. And uh, as he takes us out, thank you all for listening. We really appreciate right. having you. Um, uh, as our listeners, please subscribe on uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, or your favorite podcast providing source. Deepu, take us away. All right. Thank you all for being here with us today. 
the little poem that I have for you today is from Rabindranath Tagore. Uh, he was a Bengali writer from uh, Bengal, and here is what I have for you today. Let me not pray to be sheltered from dangers, but to the fearless in facing them. Let me not beg for the stilling of my pain, but for the heart to conquer it. Let me not look for allies in life's battlefield, but to my own strength. Let me not crave an anxious fear to be saved, but hope for the patience to win my freedom. Grant me that I may not be a coward, feeling your mercy in my success alone, but let me find the grasp of your hand in my failure. This is from Fruit Gathering from Tagore. Thanks again. See you next month.